Well, good morning again. Glad to have you uh, with us this morning. If you uh, and I haven't met yet, my name is Brian Robertson. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at Crossroads, and I'm very glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you have some time, I'll be up here in the front of the service, uh, front of the worship service center here after the service. I'd love to meet you. Uh, if you're online and you're newer to our community, we'd love you to drop us a note, let us know that you're there. We can reach out to you, let us know the various things, let you know the various things that are happening. Uh, we hope that today is an encouragement for us as we gather together uh, with our church family. And for again, for those of you who are maybe newer to our church family, hope that you feel more like family when you leave than when you came in this morning. Uh, one of the themes that we see in the book of Mark, we've been studying the book of Mark together over these last few weeks, months or so. Uh, and one of the themes we see is we see Jesus, the servant, one who came on a mission to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's part of that memory verse that we're doing. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, Mark says, Jesus says that even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we're seeking to follow after the ways, the patterns of Jesus, the servant, that we will learn to live our life eternally in his kingdom, beginning right now and lasting for the rest of eternity. And so we apprentice ourselves, or we learn from Jesus, how to do our life the way Jesus were, would do our life if he were us. Which means we're pushing away against the culture of our norm, the, the ways of our culture that we learn to respond to what's going on in our world through the eternal ways of Jesus. We follow his ways more fully. Where we're learning to the ways of humble servanthood, of patient grace, of radical hospitality among others, that we follow Jesus, the risen Christ, the one and only Son of God. And so we follow him with our whole life. And we're learning from him as we study the book of Mark, as we have been doing over these past times. We have journals in the back of the room, and you can pick one of those up. If you have a journal with you, I encourage you to open it. We're on, on page 49 is where the, the sermon notes are coming from this morning. It will be Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. So if you have a Bible with you, or maybe a Bible app with you, if you're online, you can use that handy app that's right next to the window there. You can use that as well. Well, but Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Now this part of the story is happening right after Jesus comes into Jerusalem as what we might have known if you're around the church any bit of Palm Sunday where Jesus rides on the, colt, or the donkey colt and people are putting their palm branches down. They're singing Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And everything is happening there. And this, comes, this scene comes right after that. He comes into Jerusalem, he examines the worship in the temple, what's happening there in the temple, what's happening in the streets that day. He examines it, figures out what's going on, and the scriptures say because it's late, he goes out of the city, gets a rest of, in Bethany, and he comes back the next day. And this is what we find in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. And so we'll pick it up from there. Again, if you have a, in your Bible, you can follow along. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Let's pray together and see what God may teach us uh, in this part of his story. God, we're grateful and humbled, grateful that you call us to be in your family and humbled that you would lead us. We recognize that we uh, need you more than anything else. So this morning as we learn to listen to your word, would you teach us what we need to hear? May we be receptive to what we need, not what we think others need, but what we need to hear this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage has been called by some Jesus' cleansing of the temple. In fact, if you have a Bible with you that's got like little headers on there, maybe right before verse 12 it says, Jesus cleanses the temple, or Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. This is kind of one, one of the ways we understand it. But what's really going on here is Jesus is, is performing a pro- radical and a prophetic experience. Uh, he's calling the church temple, or the, the, the temple in his day, back to true worship. What he sees in, in going on is he comes in to Jerusalem. He sees what's happening in the temple worship. He examines it, and he comes back the next day with a prophetic word about what's going on there and a correction to call people back to true worship, to call people in the, in the temple to true worship of God, of true worship of understanding what's going on. Before we go too far of what we see in the true or in what we see in the temple worship, it's good to be reminded of what God says, what Jesus says in particular, of the greatest commandment. He teaches this in other places and actually in the next chapter in Mark, I think in Mark 13 or 12 or 13, Jesus teaches about the greatest commandment. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That the, all of the, the law and the prophets, every commandment is summed up in this one commandment, this greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So worship, temple worship that was supposed to be going on in the day, was to prioritize this great commandment, to teach people and to lead people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and understanding, and to Love your neighbor as yourself. That true, authentic worship, God-honoring worship, would center on this great commandment. Jesus said everything hinges on this. So all of worship is to hinge on this. And so this morning, what I want us to look at as we look at this part of Jesus' story, the scripture that we have just read, what I want us to think about is our corporate worship. What happens when we gather in this place? On these weekends. Because there's an individual part to our worship where we worship God and we connect in our own personal devotion. That is true, but it is also true that it is important about what we do and how we gather. For how we gather and what we do when we gather forms us to be people who love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. That will be true worship. 
And any time when our worship, gathered corporate worship, veers away from learning to love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our labor as ourself, then we are far from the heart of God. And like I said, there is a personal aspect, a personal devotional aspect of our worship. And we talk about that a lot. But this morning, this morning I want to focus in on the things that we need to do as a corporate body, as we gather. And what ought to be the driving force of our gatherings together. And this morning, using this text, I want to look at three things that we can notice about true worship about God's people, when we gather with God's people, that will reflect true God-honoring worship. And the first thing is that true worship bears fruit. True worship bears fruit. That is to say that we're not perfect. We don't have it all wrapped up together, but we ought to be growing. We ought to be growing the first part of this passage, Jesus comes into, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's hungry and he sees from a distance a fig tree and he goes towards the fig tree, but he sees that the fig tree is not bearing any fruit. It's not growing. And he see, what he sees in the fig tree is exactly what he sees in the religion of his day, where people look good on the outside, where they got all the activity looking spiritual on the outside, but on the inside they're dead. They've stopped growing. And so he sees in the fig tree, he says, you're not bearing any fruit. You're not growing. You're dead on the inside. So true worship, corporate gathering worship, would prioritize growth, which means we push against the notion that we've learned everything that there is to learn. We've learned all that there is about God. We've figured it all out. We know how to do life. But we're humble enough, we are learning, and we have a desire to grow, to change, to see more of our character take on the image of Jesus. We are growing and transforming in our life that we haven't just done it once and done, but we are a growing people. So true worship prioritizes growth, and we would expect to see transformation happening, lives change, growing more patient, more kind, more loving, more merciful, more like Christ. And so our gathering would, would prioritize that and we would shape one another and we would come with a humble desire to grow, not with this arrogant sense that we've already known all that we can know about the Bible and about Jesus and about life in his kingdom. And so when Jesus approaches this tree, this fig tree, he sees from a distance that it's in leaf, but in closer examination, he sees no fruit. He sees no fruit. And so Jesus just simply declares what other people may not have been able to see. He declares that while you look good on the outside, you're really dead. There's no evidence of growth. Now Mark has a nice little phrase in there that we may have missed. We kind of just glossed past over. But it says that he doesn't see any figs because it wasn't the time for figs. It wasn't the time for figs. Well, what's that mean? Is Jesus just overreacting? Did he just wake up on the wrong side of the bed that day? He's just kind of hungry and just kind of walking. He sees, goes to a tree and he sees no figs. And he says, there's no figs. May no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. His disciples hear it and go, Jesus, it's not time for figs, man. What are you doing? Is he just overreacting? Is this one of the largest 
overreactions you can ever imagine? Not really. And for that, we need to understand a little bit about the fig tree, a little bit about how it works. Because in the springtime, around April, May, which is probably when Jesus is traveling here, there would have been leaves that would have been coming out of the, out of the tree, and right near the leaves would be these little buds, or what some people would call pre-fruit, or a little smaller aspects of fruit, which you very well could eat. They weren't as good as the full-blown figs, but they would have like two harvests. The first harvest would be these pre-fruits, these little small nubs that mostly travelers would eat. Culturally, the travelers would walk by these trees. They would see them in leaf, and they would know that it would give them nourishment on their journey as they go. So they'd go, and the owners of the fig tree were okay with this. It's just cultural way it worked. They would pick the little small fruits. They would eat them, not as good, but still good, and nourishing them along their way. And then later, the actual fig would come. The actual fig would come. Now there's two. Now this is the pre-fruit that Jesus does not see. He sees the leaves. He is expecting to see the pre-fruit, the small little nub fruit, as a traveler going by, and yet he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. And he says, well, you look really good. You look like it should be there, but it's not really there. And there's a couple of things I want you to take notice about these pre-fruit that Jesus does not see. First, they would be evidence of something greater to come, right? This spring harvest, if you will, would be evidence of something greater still to come. And yet Jesus doesn't see that at work in the fig tree. He doesn't see it. The second thing is that this pre-fruit, I already said this earlier, but it would be a blessing for the hungry traveler. These these pre-fruits were kind of left culturally almost intended for travelers as they came by, that they would have something to be blessed by, to be nourished by. So a healthy tree would produce fruit. And a healthy tree would not only produce fruit for its own sake and for its master's sake, but for the benefit of others, for the hungry travelers that would walk by. And in our life with God, and in the true temple worship, we ought to be growing. Growing more like Christ, taking on His image in our life. But we ought to also be a blessing to those around us. Not just looking good on the outside, but having real substantial change and growth in our own lives. And to be a blessing for those that are coming by. And when Jesus doesn't see this in the temple... When he doesn't see this growing in the fig tree, he calls it what it really is, dead. He says, you look good on the outside. Everything looks like it's healthy, but you're dead. The purpose of God's people from the very beginning was to experience God's blessing in their life, to experience the goodness and the richness of God's mercy in their life, and to be an outpost and an outpouring of that blessing to the community around them, to bless others. God says way back in Genesis to a man named Abraham who would change his name to Abraham, that God says, I will bless you, and through you will be a blessing for all nations, for all nations. The call of God's people is to experience the transformational work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to move us, to shape us, to change us to the image of Jesus and to be the avenue through which God's blessing comes to the world. 
That is the purpose of God's gathering. That is the purpose of God's people. And the fig tree, which represented Israel at that time, which represented God's people, we don't see that. We don't see growth happening. We see good on the outside, but we don't see substantial transformation happening. And we don't see a blessing to the world around them. We don't see it happening. Temple worship in his day had become stagnant. There was no evidence of growth. There was no evidence of hospitality. There was no evidence of, of caring for one another. There was no evidence. And it had lost its capacity to be a blessing. And the same could be true of churches today. The same thing could be true of God's gathered people in churches today. And if we're not careful, it could even be true of crossroads. Where we can have all this activity going on, where we can look spiritual on the outside and we can have wonderful things happening and more and more people showing up to services and streaming our services and listening online and doing all these wonderful things and have the appearance of spirituality, but on the inside have lost the desire to grow, have lost the desire to be a blessing to the community, have lost the desire to transform our hearts and our, and our character to the image of Jesus. And so while it is very tempting for us to look good on the outside, if we are not growing on the inside, and if we are not a blessing to the community, Jesus says, then we're dead. We're dead. There's a temptation for atrophy to set in in our spiritual life where we just kind of hit cruise control and cruise and sail off to the sunset. Where we lose the ability to grow. We're not humble enough and moldable enough anymore and we have lost our capacity to change. We've lost our capacity to be a blessing in our community. True worship, true gathered worship that prioritizes the great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself will prioritize and will bear fruit. Transformational fruit that is a blessing. That is a blessing. Second thing I want us to notice about true worship, and that is that true worship will reflect hospitality, a welcoming hospitality. Inherent in true worship would be this extended welcome to the stranger, to the traveler, to the walking by. That the church is not to be an exclusive club for only those who know the secret handshake and special language who know when to stand and when to sit and when to raise a hand and when to clap and when to not say anything. The Christianity and the, and the church ought not be this exclusive club, but for a welcome for all, a welcome for everyone to come. More than likely, Jesus was standing in the temple in the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles were able to come and to learn about God and learn about life with God. But the leaders in the temple had made it difficult for them, had made it challenging for them to come. It was a place of, it was supposed to be a place of hospitality, but the leaders and those who were organizing had made it difficult for them. The tables and the money changers that were part of the temple at that time were necessary because people would travel from a long distance away and they would have a burden of having to carry their offerings with them, carry their animals with them. And so they set up these ways in which we can wake it, make it for that you can come anyway and make it hospitable for you to come. 
But there was an unfair exchange happening at these tables where it wasn't just a hospitality. What was set up to be a way of extending hospitality to them was just a way of exasperating the difference between those who had and those who had not. Those who lived close to the temple because they were more spiritual and those who had to travel a long distance. And there's this this exasperation of the haves and the have-nots that Jesus is confronting in here. He's going, you're not welcoming those who are traveling long distance. You're making it difficult for them. You're not welcoming. There's no hospitality in this temple worship that is meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, the gathering of God's people is to be a place where we offer radical hospitality, where everyone is welcome to come and to meet God. Everyone is welcome, whether they live in the right zip code or not, whether they have a long story of God's redemptive plan in their life or not, whether they've been following Jesus for decades or they are just curious about him. And sadly, this is not always the case. It wasn't the case in the temple worship. Sadly, it's not always the case in our Christian worship either. Sometimes, The church gives off the impression that you have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, talk a certain way in order to come, in order to be welcome in our gathering. There are people for whom coming to church is a challenge because they feel like they don't fit in. Because they feel like they don't fit the mold and they will feel the judgmental stares of those Christian people when they walk into a church. And rather than radical hospitality, oftentimes the church perpetuates an us versus them dichotomy. I've had people confide in me over the years the challenge that they have coming to a church as a single person. Because they feel like the church is just made for married people. Or people that have a challenge coming to church and they, because their marriage is on the rocks and they don't have this wonderful, great marriage that seems like every other Christian has. Or that their kids are not following after God the way that they think that everyone else's kids do. That everyone's kids always obey them and do everything that they're supposed to do and they never act out. But somehow they don't fit the part. And so for coming to church, walking through those doors is a challenge because they feel like they're going to be judged because they don't measure up to whatever standard they think Christians ought to measure up to. Walking through the doors, they don't don't come in because they feel like they're going to be judged. And the fear of judgment keeps them from the church and keeps them from life-giving relationship with Jesus. But the church, temple worship, True, authentic worship which prioritizes love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it reminds us that the story of God has always been a desire for all people to experience a life-giving relationship with God through Christ. And the means by which he has commissioned that to happen is the church. It's God's people. But often, sadly, the church itself is a hindrance for people following God. When church becomes a place where it is hard to find God, it becomes a place other than which God desires it to be. Now, hear hear me clearly. I'm not suggesting at all that in an effort to make everyone comfortable, we dismiss the difficult teachings of Jesus. 
that we just kind of dismiss those things that are hard to accept, that we're never confronted by the ways of Jesus, that, that we don't understand the call to, of discipleship, of apprenticeship is to deny myself and to pick up the ways of Jesus, that in an effort to make everyone comfortable, I am not suggesting that we throw away Jesus' difficult teachings because there are clear teachings, clear instructions that we are to adhere to and that our ways very often are confronted by the ways of Jesus. That the call of apprenticeship very much is to die to ourselves, to live according to Christ. So if someone leaves the church because the Bible or the teachings of Jesus make it difficult for them to follow God because they would rather follow their own ways, well then that's between them and God. But if someone stops pursuing God, because we have made it difficult for them because of the judgment that they feel and the inhospitable place that we become, then that's between us and God. That's between us and God. Third point I want us to recognize in this passage about true worship, temple, corporate worship, is that it will magnify God. Magnifies God. Jesus says right here that his house will be a house of prayer where all people will be able to encounter God. And yet the leaders had turned it into something else. The, the people had turned it into a marketplace or something else, some way to get their needs met. They had changed the focal point from magnifying God to something else. And in our consumer context, it's tempting to make the church about all the activities, about all the things that we can do, ways in which we can get our needs met, about entertainment, about our preferences, about our likes, about our dislikes. We can make the church and the activity about church about anything else except God. And we come to evaluate our experience at the church based on how it makes us feel, based on our experience, based on our likes and based on our dislikes. The focus on, in that kind of a context, the focus is on us. Did we like the worship? Was the music on par? Did Brian not drag on forever so we can get to lunch on time? Right? See, when worship, magnifying God, when worship is replaced with consumerism, we may leave entertained, but we won't leave growing. We won't leave growing. And while we have the look of spirituality, really, inside we're dead. We're dead. But what if worship is not if I'm entertained? What if worship isn't really about how I felt about it? What if at the end of the day, worship is, did I declare the worthiness of God? What if it's less about what I get out of it and more about what I give? Corporate worship is a place where we gather to meet with God, to connect with the one who made us, who spoke us into existence, who holds us together, who knows us inside and out, and to remind us of his unending grace, to retell the story of God, to retell the, the merciful story of Jesus and him crucified and resurrected, to learn to trust him, even when everything around us seems to unravel at the seams, that we learn to trust in his unending ways. And we magnify him, we glorify him, we focus on him and not on us. Not on us. 
the focus of our gathering, true worship gathering, is to see him magnified and to find our life hidden in his. And when we do that, well, we will grow. Our lives will take on the nature of Jesus, the servant, the humble, grace-filled. We will offer radical hospitality to those who are coming by our ways. And we will be the avenue through which the blessings will flow into our community and into our families. Let me close with just a couple questions for us to consider. And we've been talking about corporate worship, and these things ought to frame how we gather. But the truth is that our corporate gatherings are shaped by individuals. Our corporate gatherings are shaped by individuals and how we come to those corporate gatherings. What we bring to those corporate gatherings. So let me ask you a few questions that might stir in your mind what God is stirring in you and where he's leading you and what he's calling you to. In your life with God, have you stopped growing? Have you kind of hit a plateau Hit cruise control and just kind of wait for a little while? Has spiritual atrophy begun to set in in your life? Are you intentionally taking steps in your life to grow with him, to learn more, to learn to take on his ways? What would it look like for you to intentionally decide to grow in these next few months or this next year? Now, many of you have taken the step to become a covenant partner here at the church where we link up with you and we meet with you and we set out an intentional plan of growth over the next six months to a year. Maybe that's something you want to do. You can use your communication card in the worship folder. Let us know. Hey, I want to take an intentional step. I don't want atrophy to set in. I don't want staleness to set in. I want to be someone who's continually learning to growing. Or maybe you see in your worship folder a list of life groups that are relaunching. And maybe instead of staying anonymous and in the shadows, maybe in this next few months it's time for you to step in to real community. And it is an intentional step of growth is to sign up and be a part of a life group. To be a part of a community of brothers and sisters who want to walk with you and to see growth happen in you. Don't settle for the appearance of health without real growth happening. So first question, are are you growing? Are you growing? Second question, how do you reflect hospitality to those coming to our gatherings? Those who are fearful of the judgment, of the eyes that are going to be watching them. Are you reflecting hospitality to them? Do you have eyes to see that for some people, walking through those doors is a huge challenge And what would it look like for you to courageously, humbly, and graciously walk towards them with a warm, hospitable smile extending the grace of Christ, letting them know that you are glad that they're here. That whether they feel like they fit the mold or not, you are glad that they've chosen to worship in our place today. In our place. What does that look like for you? Are you a growing person? Are you extending hospitality to those 
who come through these doors? Third question. How might you need to confess that you have made worship about you and about your preferences and about what you like and about what you don't like? And in your evaluation of services on the weekends, you've neglected the primary call to worship, adore, magnify Jesus. How might we need to confess that? To confess that we've made worship something else than about Jesus. Than about Jesus. What do you want to take with you? What area is the Lord nudging you and shaping you and challenging you and encouraging you to take one more step of apprenticeship, of following after Him? What do you want to take with you today? I suspect it's different for each one of you, each one of us. I know there's a few things that I want to take. I hope there is some for you as well. Is it an intentional call to grow, prioritize hospitality, or to let go of this consumerism mindset that so easily entraps us and stops us from loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself? My prayer for you and my prayer for me as we lead into this week is that we would pursue this kind of worship as we gather. That that kind of, that kind of worship would orient around what we are doing and our times gathered. And as a result, we would experience the kind of life that we've been created for. The kind of eternal life that begins now under the lordship of Jesus. And as a result, we'll experience the transformation of our hearts and we will be a blessing to those around us. Hey, let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess that at times we have been lazy in our worship. We have not sought you with our whole heart. We've coasted. And for that we are sorry. We confess that there are times when we think we are better than we are. And for that we repent. We confess that there are times when we make worship about us. When it should be about you. And for that we ask your forgiveness. Equip us and encourage us towards true authentic worship that leaves us transformed. It's in your name we pray. Amen.